You know, sometimes in life when uh, things are going bad or things are going difficult, you kind of think everything's falling apart. Sometimes it's good to just kind of step back and look at the big picture, right? You say, you know, I'm born in America, doing pretty good at that point, right? So things will start good, and then maybe you kind of evaluate the rest of your life and you realize uh, maybe it's not quite as bad. And it may be bad, and there's difficult times with all of our struggles, but sometimes the big picture can really kind of help us out in that area. And today, as we finish up 2 Corinthians, really we're going to kind of talk about the end of Paul's talking about when he's going to talk about visiting them again, but then we're going to kind of zoom out to the big picture of kind of what he says in a summary. We're going to talk about that a bit this morning. So let's go ahead and jump in here. As we jump into verse 20, we're going to talk about how the backdrop of this, when he talks about taking his Third visit to them is sort of on the him thinking about the last time he visited them and how painful it was, though there was a good positive response to the severe letter. But as we see, he needs to come a third time because issues are cropping up again. It says in verse 20, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, that you may find me not as you wish, like this whole getting back together thing may not go quite as well as maybe we hope, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. You say, why would there be All these things. Why would there be jealousy, anger, deceit? You know, as we look at that list of problems, sometimes there's like an underlying problem that we have that causes all these things. Have you ever had your wife be mad at you? And I assume there's at least half of you in the room that haven't had your wife mad at you. But uh, if you've ever had your wife mad at you, she's like mad at you all day. And you just really can't figure out what you did wrong. You know, you just really can't figure it out. And suddenly you're just fighting about everything, you know. I mean, you know, you've been, you know, throwing your clothes on the floor for the past 20 years. Why is she upset about it now? You know, what's the big deal? You know, she's always seemed to be able to be okay with it before. Suddenly it's the end of the world. What's the big deal, right? And while this has probably never happened to you, I'll give you an example, something that that I, I doubt's happened to you, I hope it's not, but then maybe you have had, you've heard of this happening. I actually did have this happen to me once, okay, to be honest, not, not with Bethany, but uh, I've had this happen to me. You find out what she's really mad about is she had a dream. And in that dream, you did something that you shouldn't have done. <laughs> like, we've been fighting all day because you're mad at me about something I did in a dream. If there's just some, that, and that's a silly example, but sometimes it's different, right? Maybe you really did something bad where it was really real and it was really painful, and six months later you're fighting about something silly, but the real underlying problem isn't, isn't the, the one pair of clothing on the floor, it's, it's something else. And I think that maybe the reason that when Paul says, when we come together, Things may not go as we hope. There may be quarreling. There may be jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. I mean, often when you start slandering each other, there's like some kind of reason you're doing it. You usually don't just like, 
yeah, I'm just going to do some slander today. You know, why not? You know, there's some like reason you're going to do it. And I think we're going to see what that reason here is in verse 21. Why, when he comes, it may not go, be going well because the Corinthians are involved in things and Paul is going to have to deal with those things. And depending on how the Corinthians respond, this isn't going well, going to go well. And so while the thing that they're actually doing is bad, likely it will pour over into these other areas of jealousy, anger, hostility, slander. So we see verse 21, it says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of impurity, sexual morality, and sensuality that they have practiced. See, the, probably the real underlying issue that's going to cause all the conflict when they come together is that the Corinthians are involved in this sexual immorality, and if they don't get it straightened out, this meeting may not be a happy one. Paul might have to exercise what we sometimes call church discipline. Church discipline's kind of pieced together, even in 1 Corinthians. There's no like perfectly uh, in a row explanation of how church discipline usually works, but like usually the steps we all agree on, there needs to be two or three witnesses. You need to have a congregational vote of some kind if someone's in sin. So you, might, you make so someone goes to them first, and then two or three, and then the congregation might vote, and then that person usually is excluded from membership in some ways until they repent of their sin. Of course, the goal being of church discipline that you always want to see that person come back into your fellowship. And if the people don't repent in Corinth, it looks like this is going to have to take place. Now, some of the sexual sins we know took place in Corinth. We, we don't know exactly which ones are going on here, but we know that at least in Corinth at some point, they committed things such as incest, Union with prostitutes, adultery, sodomy, and homosexual prostitution. Like, they weren't messing around on the whole sexual sins. They were really going, going to town. And so we don't know who these people were. Are. That our best guess is probably of the group in Corinth that's committing these sins is likely Gentiles. Gentiles were more lax in their sort of, you know, the way they viewed sexuality. So like, for example... If you're married, husband and wife are married, the man having a young boy as, that was a slave or a servant that he could take advantage of in an inappropriate way was like, okay. No one would blink an eye in Roman culture. That was, that was no big deal. That was not cheating on your wife. No one would consider that cheating on your wife. That was just standard practice. Of course, you could have female slaves that were the same and that was okay. That was, that was no big deal. And so it would seem that the people committing this were probably those that had kind of continued in their culture where this sort of thing was allowed. It may have even been like a subgroup that, you know, there was probably people, they met in houses. They may not have all been able to meet in the same place all the time. So maybe there's just a particular subgroup we really don't know. We go on to verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. It says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. So Paul talks here about how needing two or three witnesses. You know, we've met, I mentioned this earlier, and he talked about it more detail earlier in Corinthians. But 
the accusations without evidence cannot exist. Once the can of worms gets opened where you just get to make accusations and you don't actually need the proof, well, you know, where does it end, right? Like, yeah, I'm just mad at this person today. Like, boom, your career's over. And what are you going to do about it? You know, As a matter of fact, this happens in our culture all the time. I think of one, I think of a, there's a football player, I remember, and, and then the girl just said he did it. And they did an investigation, he got suspended, and they looked into it, they looked into it, and, you know, there have been a lot of football players who've done a lot of bad things, okay, and they, a lot of them deserve maybe more punishment than they've gotten, frankly. But this particular one, because the other guys had done it, he, he you know, he got it, the punishment too. Right? We can't just open the can of worms, which is, of course, really, really difficult and complicated with things like rape, because if there's no one else there... Ugh, man, that is, that is the horrible situation. We live in a sinful world, right? Terrible. You imagine the time before cameras, before having security, and how difficult it must have been to protect yourself and to be able to have evidence that this thing didn't happen. But we got to have evidence, and Paul sticks with this. Verse 2, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now that while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Those who are sinning and all others, all others might be a reference to people that have maybe not committed the actual sins, but they've kind of enabled it, right? They helped it along. Oftentimes, sometimes really bad things happen, not just because people do bad things, but other people kind of let it slide or help them along or, you know, often people with substance abuse problems, there's often someone in their life that kind of has to help them along and keep them going. So I warn those who sin before all others, I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Then he goes on and he says, seek, since you seek proof, that Christ is speaking to me. Remember, they were, they were saying, the super apostles, that Paul wasn't real. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking to me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. You will see. If you do not repent, if you do not turn from these sexual sins, you will see the power of God that has been invested in me. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. You know, Paul takes this opportunity of sin and he's able to relate it back to the crucifixion of Christ. How did Christ ultimately save us? He became weak, right? We talked about that a number of weeks ago. He became weak. And through that weakness, there was power. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Now, what's interesting, I've heard this verse before. Usually it's something like this. You go to revival camp or whatever as a kid, you know, and you say, are you really a Christian? Examine yourselves. Are you really a Christian? Look deep inside. Do you, do, maybe you think you were saved and you really weren't. You need to examine self, yourself and see whether you're in the faith. And that's usually how I hear this first used. 
That's actually probably not, while that kind of thing isn't incorrect, that's actually probably not how this verse is being met. When he says, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith, I think that Paul knew the answer. He said the, he knew the answer was going to be yes. Because when he talks about them in 2 Corinthians 1.1, he calls them the church of God. In, in chapter 7, verse 4, he says, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with joy. And verse 16 says, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So I think he knows they're saved. So why is he asking this question? Examining yourself to see the faith. He knows the answer is going to be yes. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. He knows they're going to pass the test. So why does he say it? Verse 6. I hope you will find that, then he uses the word, we have not failed the test. Because guess what? If the Corinthians failed the test, then who else would have failed? Paul. But if the Corinthians pass the test, and they're truly in Christ, guess who also passes the test? Paul does. If the Corinthians wanted to approve themselves, they were also approving Paul. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. That we may appear to have met the test. Not that we may appear to have met the test. I don't want it to just look like we've met the test. But that you may do what is right, though we seem to have failed. I would rather not make it look like we, the people that have come and ministered to you, have done really good. I don't want us to look good. I want you to do good. I would rather have it seem that we failed. So... Think through this with me. He's going to go there. They stay in their sin. They're still doing it. They don't repent. What's he going to do? He's going to show his power to them. He's going to prove it. And everyone will know that Paul has the power of God behind him. But you know what he would rather do? He would rather not have to prove it at all. Because what's the goal? Proving his power? Proving that God is working through him? Proving it? No. What's the goal? I want you to do what's right. That is what I'm caring about here. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. We want to have to do nothing to show our ability to discipline you. We want to be weak. We want you to be strong. Paul once again follows the example of Christ. How did Christ change the world? He died. He died. Now, through that death is the greatest power humankind has ever seen. But it starts with weakness. It started with weakness. The whole Old Testament looks forward to this one event. 
The whole New Testament either talks about the event itself or looks back to the event. What's the big event? Is it the creation of the world? Is it the destruction of Jericho? Is it the wiping out of the world in a great flood? Is it any of these incredible displays of God's power? What's the event that the whole Bible points to? The Son of God dying. Paul does not lead with strength, eloquence, and charisma, as we've seen throughout this book. But admonition, whether written or spoken, by meekness and gentleness of Christ, rather than by anger or fear. He, he mourns when people are unrepentant. And he has the utter dependence on Christ as we see with his difficulty with the thorn in the flesh. For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. I don't want to have to tear down. I want to use my authority to build up. Finally, brothers, rejoice. We get to the end, finally. The summary, the big picture. The whole of 2 Corinthians, and you get to the end, you say, what's the whole point of this thing? You ever listen to someone talk and they go, well, what I'm really trying to say, or in the end is, and you kind of wonder why you listen to the rest, but uh, oftentimes there's a summary statement, like the thesis. This is kind of like the big goal I'm hoping that happens. Rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The staccato of admonitions, the ultimate goals. I want you to get along. I want you to live together in peace and love. That's the goal. That's the goal. When we look at the whole of Christ and what he's going to do for us, there are many, many things. But Paul in this book, when he gets to the end, this is what he really wants the Corinthians to do. Live in peace, in the love of God, and peace be with you. Then he gives kind of a cultural example of this, or at least I would argue one. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, this holy kiss idea is great. It's great for hermeneutics. So holy kiss doesn't seem to really be part of the synagogue tradition that we know of, so they didn't do it prior to the church being started. So this is something new with the church. We don't know exactly how it came about. It doesn't seem like it's an erotic thing. You know, just, you know it's, it's, it says a holy kiss. And it's pretty clear that Paul commands that we need to greet one another with a holy kiss. So this is why this is interesting in hermeneutics. We would like to say things like, when the Bible commands it, maybe we even narrow it down. The Bible commands it in the New Testament. You have to do it exactly. Do you? If I would have asked you that question, 
prior to reading this verse, if I'd have said, if the New Testament commands you to do it directly, should you do it? I bet each and every one of you, without a second thought or hesitation, would have said yes. I'm not sure how much clearer verse 12 could be. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Pucker up, Rob. It's going to be awkward. But the Word of God says, and we just got to do it. So let me suggest something, how sometimes interpreting things can be complicated. I think the Bible's true. I think it's all true. I think we should obey it. I, I believe in inspiration and errancy and all those fun words. But sometimes I think there is legitimacy in saying, what is Paul going at here when he wants to greet them, says greet with a holy kiss? You know, we still do things like this today. We shake hands. We give hugs and so on and so forth. We kind of have our own cultural way of doing things. So sometimes I think it is legitimate to say, when the point of the, what the person is saying, you find out what they're trying to get you to do, the goal of it, and sometimes the form or function may not be exactly the same. So, some, we might be able to say, in the Bible, they met for 10 hours on Sunday. Let's, it doesn't say that, but let's pretend it did. Would that mean we have to absolutely meet for 10 hours on Sunday? No, it wouldn't, it did, unless it said you need to do this because if you don't, you know, you're, you, you know, like a reason or whatever. But she sometimes say, what's the point of this? And then how do we accomplish this? And I think what he is trying to get at here is the value of the human touch. Now, there's all kinds of negative human touch, and that gets lots of bad publicity, right? We need to certainly be careful with that. There have been many studies have done. This is my favorite study that's been done. Of course, it has to do with basketball. Winning teams in the NBA touch one another more than losing teams. They give more high fives. They make more physical contact than those that do not. Bill Russell, if I'm getting my story right, the famous Boston Celtics guy played a long time ago. He was famous for always going up to his fellow teammates and making physical contact with them in order to encourage them. There's numerous studies done, and I'm going to show us a little video, just a couple minutes, that kind of summarizes the value of human touch. The importance of human touch. Human touch has a dramatic effect on health, and it starts from birth. Babies who are touched more cry less, sleep better, and have better brain development. One study even showed that 10-year-olds that had been held more by their mothers as infants had less stress hormones when facing anxiety-producing situations. As we grow into adulthood, the amount we touch others and the amount we are touched by others dramatically decreases. This can have a major impact on overall health as touch is an important part of our emotional well-being, contributing to our mental health, as well as improving physical health. Some of the benefits of touch include garnering trust between individuals. Touch is a form of communication, and by allowing someone to touch you, you're communicating to that person that you trust them. Touch can reduce loneliness. The touch of another person can make you feel safe and not so all alone, improving your self-confidence and creating bonds and connections with others. 
Being touched regularly can decrease stress, which by itself can improve immune system function, and in some people, regular touching can increase white blood cell production, which improves health and strengthens against disease. Some research indicates that being touched regularly can also lower blood pressure, lower heartbeat, and help you recover from illness quicker. Regular touch is also vital in loving relationships. As happily married couples report being touched more than not so happily married couples. These are just a few of the benefits of touch. And as more and more research on the subject of touch is being gathered, it's all showing how important human touch is to mental and physical health. There are even people that go through such long periods of not being touched that they make appointments at the doctor's office just to be touched. So while I don't really want to try to navigate you through all the times is appropriate, not appropriate, because it probably depends on who you're with and where you're at and so on and so forth, you know. But when, I, when I'm with like a family or a culture where they all hug a lot, you know, my family, we don't do it a lot necessarily. We just don't hug a lot. It's not a big deal. You know, we just don't. But if I'm with people that do, you know what I do? I just hug them right back. You know, I just hug them right back. And I think there is some value in that. And it seems that Paul seemed to also believe there was some value in the physical touch. He continues the end. He says, all the saints greet you. Verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul ends with kind of this summary statement where he references the gospel and, of course, then our relationship with God as we have fellowship with the Spirit, and he does it in a Trinitarian form. But the last thing I would like to talk to you about is this really uh, kind of crazy manifesto I read this week. You know, as we get to the end of 2 Corinthians, and you say, what were the final goals, Corinthians? Like peace, like getting along with one another, having the love of God be with us. This was written by a guy named John Ernest. If any of you are faithful news watchers, you may know who he was. He's 19 years old. He had a 4.31 GPA, who's apparently a fantastic piano player. He went to Cal State University. He was in the varsity swim team. He was involved in an Orthodox Presbyterian church, and he was known for his strong work ethic. Recently, John Ernest went into a Jewish synagogue and shot as many people as could. Thankfully, his gun jammed, so he only killed one and injured a few more. But as you can see with the letter that I'll read portions of, you'll see his intentions. My name is John Ernest, and I'm a man of European ancestry. The blood that runs in my veins is the same that ran through the English, Nordic, Irish men of old. I am a descendant of the one original colonist of Roanoke, John Ernest. As you can see the direction of this, I really will try hard to figure out how to not read certain uh, racial slurs, they're so full of them, I will do my best here. From my mother's side, I'm inherited the blood of, a very wealthy, of very wealthy Yankees, intelligent, resourceful, and uncompromising. From my father's side, I inherited the blood of poor southern farmers, intelligent, musically gifted, self-sufficient. A part of my ancestors lives within me in this very moment. Their reason that I'm here, their acts of bravery, ingenuity, and righteousness 
live on through me. Truly, I am blessed by God for such a magnificent bloodline. To my family and friends, I can already hear your voices. How could you throw your life away? You had everything. You had a loving family. You had great friends. You had a church. You were doing well in nursing school. You could have gone so far in your field of study. You could have made so much money and started a happy family of your own. I understand why you would ask this, but I pose a question to you now. What value does my life have compared to the entirety of the European race? Is it worth it for me to live in comfort in life at the cost of internal he uses the term jewelry, which I'm not sure how to say another way, but I'm probably going to try to say it a different way from now on. Sealing the doom of my race. No, I will not sell my soul by sitting idly by as evil grows. I'd rather die in glory or spend the rest of my life in prison than waste away, knowing that I did nothing to stop this evil. It is not in my blood to be a coward. I do not care about the debt-based currency that Jews like to pretend is money. I do not care for the bread and circus that the Jews has caused to, has used to attempt to pacify my people. I willingly sacrifice my future, the future of having a fulfilling job, a loving wife, and amazing kids. I sacrifice this for the sake of my people, our people. I would die a thousand times over to prevent the doomed fate that the Jews have planned for our race. How does killing Jews help the European race? The European race, you think it's doomed? What are you talking about? The Jews now are innocent. And he responds to these questions by saying, every Jew is responsible for the meticulously planned genocide of the European race. They act as a unit, and every Jew plays his part to enslave the other races around him whether consciously or subconsciously. Their crimes are endless. For lying and deceiving the public through their exorbitant role in the news media, for using usury and banks to enslave nations in debt and control all finances for the purpose of funding evil, for their role in starting wars on a foundation of lies which have costed millions of lives throughout history, for their role in cultural Marxism and communism. I'm really not sure how the Jews came out ahead on communism, but apparently this guy thinks so. For pushing degenerate propaganda in the form of entertainment, for the role in feminism, which has enslaved women in sin, for causing many to fall into sin with their role in peddling pornography, for their role in voting for and funding politicians and organizations who use mass immigration to displace the European race, for the large role in every slave trade for the past 2,000 years for promoting race mixing, for their cruel and bloody history of genocide behavior, for their persecution of Christians of old, and finally, for the role in the murder of the Son of Man, that is the Christ, every Jew, young and old, has contributed to these. For these crimes, they deserve nothing but hell, and I will send them there. How can you call yourself a Christian and do this? He knows people will ask him. Surely the Bible calls for you to love your enemies. He responds. Firstly, just because someone calls himself a Christian does not make them one. Boy, how many times have you heard good people say that? Plenty of people wrongfully identify with being a Christian. 
Beyond the scope of time, the Father and the Son made a covenant in eternity that the Son would bring a people to him that he may be glorified through them. I did not choose to be a Christian, certainly a Calvinist background. The Father chose me, the Son saved me, and the Spirit keeps me. Why me, I do not know. And my answer to the loving of my enemies, trust, derogatory term for Jews, and their puppet, brain-dead, lemming, uh, he uses this term called normal fags. I don't know if any of you know what that means. It's, it's just like people that aren't tapped into the underground internet subculture. They're just normal people that, that are taken in by the normal stuff. Okay. To take one quote from the Bible and grossly twist its meaning, meaning to serve their own evil purposes... Meanwhile, ignoring the encompassing history and context of the entire Bible, then wisdom it takes to apply God's law in a broken world. Is it lawful to let a thief murder my friend instead of killing the thief to prevent the death of my friend? To ask such a question is to answer it. It is not loving towards your friend to let him be murdered. It is not loving towards your enemy, the thief, to let him murder. A child can understand the concept of self-defense. It is unlawful and cowardly to stand on the sidelines as the European people are genocided around you. I did not want to have to kill Jews, but they have given us no other option. I'm just a normal dude who wanted to have a family, help and heal people, and play piano. But the Jew with his genocidal instincts is insisting on poking the bear until it tears off his head. The Jew has forced our hand. Our response is completely justified. My God does not take kindly to the destruction of his creation, especially one of the most beautiful, intelligent, and innovative races that he has created, least of all at the hands of one of the most ugly, sinful, deceitful, cursed, and corrupt. My God understands why I did what I did. He then goes on to quote five passages of scripture in order to prove his point. To the derogatory term for African Americans and derogatory term for Jews, media reading this, I think it's important for you to know that I did not do this alone. I had a man, help from a man named Felix Arvid Ulf, I'm butchering his name, he was kind enough to plan and fund this whole operation, that sly leap. He then says, apparently PewDiePie, and so PewDiePie is like the YouTube name for this guy. So if any of you are like anywhere remotely tapped in to the YouTube world, you will have heard of PewDiePie. From like 2004 to 2007, PewDiePie had the most subscribers on YouTube of anybody. Normally what he does is things called Let's Play. You basically watch him play a video game. I, I watch Let's Plays, uh, I've watched lots of them. I probably even watched PewDiePie videos. Apparently PewDiePie hates Jews as much as derogatory name for people from India. Who would have known? PewDiePie was recently excoriated for promoting another channel that 
was anti-Semitic. Remember, PewDiePie is the number one from 2004 to 2007 largest YouTube streamer that there is. I can tell you, people under a certain age aren't watching t TV. They're watching YouTube. Skipping on, if your goal is strictly carnage and highest score, I'd highly recommend you look into flamethrowers. Remember, kids, napalm is more effective than gasoline if you want Jews to really light up like a menorah. I know you're out there. Fire, Anon, make us proud. If you don't know what Anon is, that's like an abbreviation for anonymous. So if you go on like a forum or a kind of an underground social media site that's talking about these types of things, people often go, they refer to each other as anonymous. And the kind of shortening of that is Anon. And of course, in this context, you'll see he basically means the anonymous people on his chat boards and uh, kind of underground. When I say underground social media, I mean ones you've never heard of, probably, unless you've paid really close attention to this. Don't leave, don't leave DNA. Don't bring electronics, which can be used to track you. Don't leave a paper trail. Don't take too long doing it. Oh, and by the way, I'm only talking about Minecraft. And of course, he says this so when someone reads that. Then he goes through like a series of questions. Are you a terrorist? Well, let's walk through this question together, shall we, he says. I'm not wearing the... Sand, bleep, 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 equivalent to a do rag. My skin isn't the color of bleep. You can't smell me from across the room. It's socially unacceptable for me to marry my cousins. I do not shout something. It doesn't look like a sadist attempt to play tug of war with my nose. So, no, I'm not a terrorist. Do you feel any remorse for what you did? The Jews have depleted our patience and our mercy. I feel no remorse. I only wish I killed more. I'm honored to be one to send these vile anti-humans into the pit of fire. May they shall remain for eternity. He's asked, do you hate other races? I hate, any, I hate anyone who seeks the destruction of my race. Negative term for Latinos and black people are useful puppets for the Jews in terms of replacing whites. Of course, they aren't intelligent enough to realize that the Jew is using them, and they will be enslaved if Europeans are eliminated. Do they actively hate my race? Yes, I hate them. Are they in a nation but do not hate my race? I do not hate them, but they aren't staying. Are they out of my nation and do not hate my race? Fine by me. Then he says, why so much hatred? He says this, there's no love without hatred. You cannot love God if you do not hate Satan. You cannot love righteousness if you do not also hate sin. You cannot love your own race if you do not hate those who wish to destroy it. Love and hate are two sides of the same coin. I may be filled with hatred, but I am also filled with love. Most people are empty inside, unspiritual, and shameful dopamine fiends devoid of all love, honor, and purpose. I cannot imagine a more pathetic existence. Did your family cause you to think this way? Unfortunately, no. I had to learn what they should have taught me from the beginning. Who inspires you? Jesus Christ 
the Apostle Paul, Martin Luther, Adolf Hitler, Robert Bowers, who did a similar shooting, Brenton Torrent, who also did a similar shooting, Ludwig van Beethoven, Moon Man. Some of you might remember Moon Man from the 80s. He's a McDonald's character who sat and played the piano, and he did the Moon Man songs. He's turned into like an internet meme, and he's this like code underground for sort of this anti-Semitic stuff. So he is. And Pink Guy. Pink Guy is a YouTube personality. Where's this pink thing? I watched one of his videos. at 6 million views. I couldn't really watch too much of it. I thought they were going to kick me out of McDonald's. It was so bad. To my brothers in Christ of all races, be strong. Though the Jew is inspired by demons and Satan will attempt to corrupt your soul with the sin and perversion of negative term towards Jews. Remember that you are secure in Christ. Turn away from your sin, not because it is required of your salvation. Boy, this sounds so familiar, doesn't it? For nobody save Christ can merit heaven based on his own works, but rather out of gratitude for the gift of salvation that your God has given you. Always remember that it is God that is keeping you alive and in faith. All sins stem from the arrogant belief that one does not need God. Satan was so prideful that he actually, truly believed that he, a created being, could overthrow the Ancient of Days, the creator of all existence. Know that you are saved in Christ and nothing, not death, nor torture, nor sin can steal you away from him. Despite all this, I'm not worried. I have complete trust and certainty that all of you after reading this will begin planning your attack on the enemy. And you'll attack again and again and again until either we win or we die. I know you will do this because you're true Anans. You're white men. I'm not worried that the whole world is against you. I'm not worried because you are the greatest race that our God has created. It is our duty to keep this world from falling into darkness. White men will not let God's creation be corrupted and destroyed by the Jew without a fight. Remember your honor, white men. You know, this week in men's class, we learned about Nazi Germany a little bit. You say... Where was the church during Nazi Germany? Of the 18,000 pastors, Protestant pastors in Germany, 3,000 of them wholly supported Hitler, said we should get rid of the Old Testament because it has the Jews in it. We should take out parts of the New Testament because it has the Jews in it. 3,000 of them, they they called themselves the German Christians, they fully supported him. You think, oh, well, that's the minority. Surely other people came out in droves against them. Guess how many came out against? 3,000. There was many people actively working for Hitler as there were actively going against. And the other 12,000 just stood by and done nothing. I don't know if that's the reason when I read this it bothered me so much. Probably also because, you know, as a pastor, he, he claims Christ, right? He claims Christ. 
So if someone wants to do something evil for secularism, okay, well, maybe they have some sort of different worldview. This person claims to do it for Christ. You say, well, this guy must be crazy. He must be just like clinically insane. Was the entire nation of Germany clinically insane? The whole country? I don't think so. One of the greatest things that Christianity did in a negative way in Nazi Germany was they made people feel like what they were doing was okay. And this guy saying, I'm going to go shoot people. And I'm going to say, God is telling me it's okay. And while maybe it doesn't going to make that much of a difference, I'm just one pastor at a small church in Kansas. I don't got tens of thousands of people that are going to watch this sermon. I, for one, am going to say, this is terrible. It's garbage. Christianity, the one that we learned about in 2 Corinthians, talks about the goal of restoration, comforting one another, agreeing with one another, living in peace. Where we have a Savior who the greatest event was dying for us. Does not write that. Let's remember what Christ did for us today on the cross as we celebrate communion. Let's pray. Dear we just thank you so much for what Jesus Christ did, for giving us the example. How much more clear did you need to make it? How much more clear did you need to show us that we need to be people who are willing to sacrifice for peace, for love. You sent your son to die. You watched the pain happen. Lord, I just pray you would give us the same courage that Jesus Christ showed us on the cross. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.